0: Today's episode is sponsored by Privacy.com, the totally free service that lets you buy anything online without having to give out your credit card number and lets you prevent companies from overcharging you. You link your bank account to your Privacy.com account, and then you're able to create virtual credit card numbers to use when you shop. You can create as many virtual cards as you want, you can delete them, you can freeze them, unfreeze them, and set spending limits on each card. There are countless different advantages to using a service like this to pay your bills, and buy things online. For instance, use a virtual credit card when you sign up for a free trial and never worry about canceling or being charged when the trial is over. You can find out more, get 100% free and unlimited access, and a $5 credit just for trying by going to privacy.com slash best, and you can find that link in the show notes. And now... Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the history of socialism in America, from our often violent response to the idea in the wake of the Russian Revolution, through the recent revival in interest today. Clips today come from Backstory, The Empire Files, On the Media, This Is Hell, Activism Munich, and The Real News Network.
1: If we step back from the moment and, you know, with the advantage of hindsight, we can see that for much of the 20th century, the Soviet Union was the United States's ideological foil. Do you think that's something that we can find in 10 days that shook the world itself? Does Reed's work foreshadow that or what does it tell us? about the kind of relationship that will emerge between the United States and the Soviet Union.
2: I think that he, like Lenin in some ways, in 1917 believed that there could be a good relationship between the two. Um, He and Lenin talk about this. It's not reflected so much in his book, but they talk about how the United States and and the Soviet Union at that time don't really have direct areas of conflict in the world, like trade and other sorts of things. And so there's no reason why they can't be friendly, even though they appear to be ideologically at odds. Mm -hmm. But you have to remember at the time that being a socialist or a communist in the United States, up until about this moment, was not seen as to be a negative thing necessarily. Um, You know, Eugene V. Debs, who was a quite famous candidate for president. And we might add a socialist candidate for Yes, yes, yeah, so, yeah, so, yeah, a socialist candidate ran mm-hmm. in 1912 and got six or 7% of the vote and got over a million votes. And so, um, so I think the, the, the fear that's generated is one that is quite distinctly intentional by a small group of people among the elite, because what they saw happen in Russia was the nobles and landowners and people with status lost what they had. And I think that creates, that generates a fear, not only in the United States but sort of worldwide, that if you allow sort of Bolshevism into your country, then you have chaos and you'll and you'll have a destruction of the of the system that exists. Do you assign Ten Days that shook the world in
1: any of your <laughs> classes? Uh,
2: I never have. Actually, and 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 the and the reason is I've been teaching Russian history for twenty years at College of DuPage, and the reason is I that I don't is that I think that it's very difficult for students to read and understand in the historical sense what's going on, because there are lots of names, lots of dates, lots of locations, and lots of acronyms, because the Soviets were in love with acronyms for everything. But I think, though, that it's it's something that um, is absolutely a, a valuable resource to give you a glimpse at that moment. Because the question of the Soviet Union in my lifetime, in the 20th century, um, growing up, was always sort of a always cast in stone. So when I was in high school and college in the 1980s, there was no debate. It's and just, where this was this? It, I finished high school in Nebraska. Nebraska, okay. And part of what got me interested in russian studies was the fact that all of my classmates would sit and tell me that this is the evil empire this is the time of reagan and i can remember very distinctly as a sophomore in high school listening to the wisdom of my 16-year-old classmates tell me that we needed to preemptively nuke all russians because they were evil people and i thought that can't really be true <laughs> and so i think what we see now in the past 25 years since the collapse of the soviet union is a kind of unraveling of that mythology. So why, do, why are we so hardened against this country? Why, what's the point? And why are they so hardened against us? And I think what you'll, what we already have found and will continue to find is that there's a great deal of diverse voices from both the Soviet side, Russian side, and the American side that the Cold War wasn't necessarily as cold as we thought it was.
1: So do you think that Reed provides an insight at a particularly fluid moment in the relationship between these two nations?
2: I think, I think the key thing that Reed provides for the readers in 1919 when they read his book and still today, he provides a positive, um, detailed, credible, firsthand account by an accessible American, somebody who writes well, somebody who can <laughs> explain things. And the question I ask my students when I introduce it to them is, is what would make an American, Harvard educated, from Oregon, not necessarily very ideological, what would make him observe these events and become such a true believer. And that's true of other people at the time, too, other Americans who witnessed it. What makes it so attractive? Why is this revolution so attractive to these people who have no stake in it? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no reason for, I mean, for him to care. He can go home, he can go home and do something else. And so I think that that's one of the things that I use his work and, and others to sort of stress to my students is, is what makes these Americans, you know, jump in so far.
3: We don't want to try to pretend the Soviet Union was heaven on earth. It was a poor country. And you also ask the question, at what cost? When you go from a, sit, a country that's 75% peasant in 1917 and become an urban industrial country within 20 years, a process that took 150 years in Germany, in France, in Britain, in the United States, and you compress that into 20 years, when you have that kind of social reorganization of society, there's going to be a lot of social tension Uh, a lot of pressures on families and on individuals. And so it was, in some ways, as a consequence of its dynamism, also a fairly brutal process. You know, when Karl Marx and Frederick Engels wrote the Communist Manifesto, they did not think the the revolution, the socialist revolution, would happen in poor, underdeveloped countries. Nor did Lenin. Lenin always thought it would happen in Germany or France. He never expected the Russian Revolution to become the vanguard of the worldwide socialist revolution. Uh, Lenin main, and the Bolsheviks were mainly fighting to end the monarchy in 1905 or 1910 or 1915. It was a consequence of World War One, as Lenin explained, the revolution happened not where the social conditions for socialism were really ripe, but where imperialism was weak. In other words, he said, this really wasn't, we weren't ready for socialism. He said, but we were the weakest link in the imperialist chain, it broke there. The revolution broke it because of the war. And so Russia had its revolution. When Lenin and Trotsky and Stalin, all of the leaders, uh, looked out and saw the world in 1917 after they made the revolution, they said, "Well, we can win, but only if Germany has a socialist revolution, so that we come to our aid." And Lenin said, "Soon as the advanced capitalist countries have their revolution, we won't be the vanguard. We'll be like looking to them. We'll be looking to them for assistance, culturally, economically. But the other revolutions didn't come. Well, there was a revolution in Germany and in Hungary. Uh, it all happened in 1918, but the capitalists overcame it. They didn't have a Bolshevik-type party capable of taking advantage of the revolution and seizing and holding power. So the Soviet Union became isolated. So isolated. The most sanctioned, embargoed, blockaded country in the world. We know about the blockade in Cuba. Well, the Soviet Union was completely blockaded. So this poor, illiterate country that had a war and then a civil war and famine had come back by 1920, uh, nobody would trade with it. The worldwide capitalist power said, we're going to destroy it. We're going to snuff it out. We're going to strangle it. And as a consequence, the Soviet Union had to develop on a basis of complete self-reliance on its own indigenous industry rather than having the benefits of worldwide trade.
4: Mm. After the fall of the Soviet Union, it was declared the end of history, right? I mean, socialism was tried and failed capitalism would rule to the end of time as a socialist what's your response
3: well it's a very important question because the hubris and arrogance of the apologists of imperialism and capitalism was so at such a high point in 1991 and 92 where they thought well or told the world well you see socialism was tried they conflated socialism with a government the soviet union it was tried in the soviet union and that government failed that means socialism failed And thus, history has stopped because we went from early primitive society, as they would call it, to feudal society, to capitalist society. But this is it. Now we can live under the rule of billionaires. Our crowning achievement as a species. We've made it. Billionaires will rule. History has shown that the other way isn't going to happen. Uh, Is that how people will remember the Soviet Union? I don't think so. Uh, The Soviet Union will be looked at in history not as the end of communism but as its first valiant experiment that the flaws and defects that exist in the Soviet Union and yes there were many were not the cause of a planned socialist economy or public property they were the co- they were caused by a torturous history, an environment domestically poor, underdeveloped, illiterate uh, society, ravaged by civil war, invaded by 14 imperialist armies, embargoed and deprived technology, invaded by the Nazis and taking 27 million lives and destroying the economy. That was the conditions under which this socialist experiment uh, was conducted. It will be remembered as the first time The red flag was waved where the working class, the poor, the oppressed, the people who were written off by all previous ruling classes, they said we could remold society. They made a huge historic achievement to the 20th century and it will be, because we will learn its lessons, the the place, the, the sort of the petri dish where communists and socialists will learn from, not reject. In other words, the Soviet experiment Uh, must be embraced and respected as a huge monumental achievement in spite of its defects and flaws.
4: From a young age, we're taught fidelity to the system and to the state. We all grow up saying the Pledge of Allegiance in school, But the words under God we take for granted. Those words were added to the Pledge of Allegiance in 1954 to exclude American communists. Communists, of course, are godless heathens. That piece of history is largely unknown, but the ideology behind it is probably the most known idea in American society.
5: This town may appear to be an accurate likeness of a typical American community, but it's a fraud. It isn't free.
2: Socialism has spread the shadow of human regimentation over most of the nations of the earth. And the shadow is encroaching upon our own liberty.
6: If a person defends the activities of communist nations while consistently attacking the domestic and foreign policy of the United States, she may be a communist.
7: Now that you've become acquainted with the enlightened communist system, in contrast to the outdated capitalistic way of life, you are now prepared for the next step of your indoctrination.
2: You won't have to worry about next year. The state will do your planning from now on.
4: And we'll overthrow it by force and violence. We'll have our way if it means bloodshed and terror.
5: Because the news about communism is getting around. And it's only another word for slave.
4: In almost every industrialized country in the world, socialist parties have huge representations, large membership bodies, and hold many elected seats in government. But in America, everyone knows that being called a socialist or communist carries an immediate negative connotation. The term is frequently used to smear people in groups, not necessarily for being one, but merely for associating with one. In the late 1800s, there was an intense battle between organized labor and the country's industrial capitalists. With socialists in the leadership, the labor movement was on the cusp of winning the eight-hour workday, and the corporate owners were willing to do anything to keep working their workers to the bone. Workers on strike all over were shot and killed by police during this fight for what seems like such a basic human right today. In 1887, seven anti-capitalist leaders in the movement were sentenced to death on trumped-up charges. Four of them publicly hanged, It was a clear message to anyone involved in radical politics. The battling ideologies of capitalism and socialism in America is more than just opposing arguments. It's been a real battle with real weapons, where one side was exiled, sent to prison, and murdered. Anti-communist paranoia continued to build. Struggles that outraged the rich, like child labor laws and women's right to vote, were labeled red plots. President Woodrow Wilson was helping push for new laws that officially criminalized opinions, not deeds. In 1915, in his State of the Union address, he declared, there are citizens of the United States who have poured the poison of disloyalty in the very arteries of our national life, who have sought to bring the authority and good name of our government into contempt. Such creatures of passion, disloyalty, and anarchy must be crushed out and the mission to crush out anti-capitalist ideas was in full effect as world war one began a coalition of socialists and anarchists who had been leading the militant labor and anti-war struggle was a primary target over 90 iww leaders were mass arrested and given lengthy prison sentences repression in the courts was reinforced by hired gangs and lynch mobs allowed by the state to carry out vigilante actions In 1917, the oil company-controlled newspaper Tulsa World printed on its front page, the first step in whipping Germany is to strangle the IWWs, kill them, just as you would kill any other kind of snake. And they did kill them. In that year alone, big business's thugs, like the Pinkerton Gang, lynched many IWW leaders. Frank Little, a popular IWW leader of mine workers in Butte, Montana, was beaten, dragged behind a car, and hanged from a railroad trestle. That same year, Wilson legislated the criminalization of dissent by passing the Espionage Act, included in the U.S. government's sweeping definition of espionage, suggesting that you shouldn't be used as cannon fodder in a war between ruling elites. In 1918, famous American socialist and presidential candidate Eugene Debs gave a speech in Canton, Ohio. He said, "'Wars throughout history have been waged for conquest and plunder. The feudal barons of the Middle Ages, the economic predecessors of the capitalists of our day, declared all wars, and their miserable serfs fought all battles, taught to revere their masters, to believe that when their masters declared war upon one another, it was their patriotic duty to fall upon one another,' and to cut one another's throats for the profit and glory of the lords and barons. They alone declare war, yours not to reason why, yours but to do and die. If war is right, let it be declared by the people. You who have your lives to lose, you certainly above all others have the right to decide the momentous issue of war or peace. For these words alone, Debs was arrested, convicted, and sentenced to 10 years in prison. The charge? Obstructing recruitment. Many others who did nothing but speak against the war met the same fate. During the patriotic hysteria, the Espionage Act was expanded into the most repressive law in U.S. history. The Sedition Act read... Whoever shall willfully utter, print, write, or publish any disloyal, profane, scurrilous, or abusive language about the form of government of the United States or the military or naval forces of the United States or advocate, teach, defend, or suggest the doing of any of the acts shall be punished. Over 1,500 people were arrested under this law. Those convicted faced up to 20 years in prison. Everything and everyone was a target. Books and feature films were seized by the government. Every postmaster in the country was under orders to monitor all-mail and refuse to mail newspapers and magazines, deemed unloyal. For those who were open communists, well, they were just arrested. Under the Smith Act, it was deemed illegal for anyone to be a member of the Communist Party. In a surprise attack, the state arrested everyone who held a leadership position in the party. All of them were sent to prison. Over a hundred were convicted of being communists and given sentences of up to six years, jailed for nothing but their beliefs. During this period, 5,000 communists were forced to flee the country. More than a thousand went to prison. The climate was such that anyone who even leaned to the left was completely persecuted. But just to show how far it would take things in the legal system, the U.S. government went beyond hard prison sentences. In 1951, Communist Party members Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were found guilty of being spies. But their sentences would be much different than their predecessors. The judge convicted them not for espionage, but for the murder of all the American soldiers who had been sent to die in Korea. On June 19, 1953... They were executed. It seems like there had been waves of anti-communism before World War II, and after World War II, it seemed like anti-communism was pretty much locked in. How did the Cold War impact the repression on the left here at home?
3: After World War II, you had... Soviet Union got stronger, China had its revolution, Vietnam had a revolution, revolutions were happening all over the world against colonialism, so the U.S. elites, bankers, politicians, and of course the repressive agency said, we're going to stop that in its track in the United States, we're not going to let it flower. Communism after World War II became synonymous with the struggle against the Soviet Union. Communism was treated no longer as an indigenous movement for social progress and social justice and equality, but a fifth column, an extension of an enemy state. And of course, the US and the Soviet Union had nuclear weapons pointed at each other. So if you were a communist, if you were sympathetic to the Soviet Union, sympathetic to socialism, then you were a traitor and you were treated as such, and that's what happened. Tens of thousands of people lost their jobs. Hundreds of thousands of people uh, were driven out of industry. People decided then and there, I won't sign a petition, I won't go to a demonstration, I won't have anything to do with the left, because if I do, I could ruin my chances for employment or education, and it could impact my entire family. That's what actually happened in the United States. The United States um, government has a lot of power. The US media, the corporate-owned media, has represented the view of the United States to the letter. And so the witch hunt that began in 1945, 46, 47, McCarthyism became what I would say the unofficial religion of the United States. It had; it was an article of faith. You had to swear that you renounced the devil, renounced communism, renounced socialism so that you could work, so that you could have a career, so that you could uh, thrive in any possible way. It became a rule for existence in the United States. And so you had not only censorship, but self-censorship. Millions of people decided, I'm just not gonna identify as a socialist or a communist, even if I think those thoughts, Mm -hmm. because I can't survive within this system.
0: If you're looking for well-made clothes with no hidden agenda, look no farther than PACT apparel. PACT, that's P-A-C-T, makes incredibly soft clothing for the whole family with a comforting amount of transparency. They use 100% organic cotton and other sustainable materials while skipping the toxic dyes, synthetic fertilizers, chemicals, and other gross stuff you don't want touching your skin or in your water supply. They partner with fair trade certified factories where the people who make the clothes are treated with dignity and given additional wages to invest in their families and communities. And Pact is on a mission to democratize organic by pricing their clothes fairly. Tees are just $15, leggings $30, and undies only $9. The Pact hooded sweatshirt is the big winner in our household, as Amanda wears it all the time, thanks to it being, as she says, both soft and chic, not a description you often hear of hoodies. Shop women's, men's, and kids' styles at Pact. Dot com and enter the code BESTOFLEFT, all one word, at checkout for 25% off your first order. That's W-E-A-R-P-A-C-T dot com and the code BESTOFLEFT.
8: To hear it from the right-wing media, a new red menace is upon us. My gosh, socialism has never failed so vividly as it has in the modern times
9: and yet these guys come out there and say that's what america needs i don't think so
4: venezuela is currently one of the most dangerous places on earth hunger and crime are rampant clean water and medicine scarce so why on earth would anybody want to bring those catastrophic policies and conditions to the u.s the new york times hailing in a new op-ed quote the millennial socialists are coming
8: After Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's primary victory earlier this month in New York, the media and the political establishment are reckoning with the specter of a particular brand of left-wing politics.
6: Democratic socialism, to me, is the basic belief that in a moral and, and wealthy America, in a moral and modern America, no person should be too poor to live in this country.
8: In March, the Washington Post ran an op-ed by its staff columnist and avowed socialist Elizabeth Brunig called It's Time to Give Socialism a Try. This week in the Miami Herald, the op-ed headline, they called themselves socialists, but they don't know the meaning of the word. And on ABC's The View, this exchange.
10: This is what I need from her. Name one country the socialism has ever worked and also every Sweet. every democratic socialist who's going um, on TV Denmark, saying that it's good needs Norway, to start paying 90% in taxes Iceland. on your tax form. <laughs> no, on Did your you
8: tax form. Socialism, an idea once relegated to the kind of far left newspapers given out at campus conferences has become fodder for daytime talk shows, a clear offering in the marketplace of ideas though its adherents might prefer to think of it as simply an idea whose time has come. Nathan Robinson is editor-in-chief at Current Affairs magazine and a self-described socialist. Nathan, welcome to the show. Hi, nice to be with you. This is a word watch to define socialism, which is kind of like having a word watch to define meat. There's a lot of different kinds of meat.
10: So it's not just like describing meat. It's like describing a lot of abstract terms like love, democracy, liberalism. Broadly, socialism describes a left economic tendency. There are things that nearly all socialists agree on, a skepticism of the concentration of economic power in a few hands, a belief that working people, laborers need more control over their workplaces, need more ownership over their lives, a broad skepticism of capitalists and landlords. But then what you're going to do about that, there are huge raging arguments among socialists and have been for centuries.
8: It's fair to say, I suppose, that the common thread is taking care of the many, even at some risk of arguable unfairness to the few.
10: Yes, and a belief that fairness itself requires justice to all, and there's an egalitarian instinct to it, you know, the fair distribution uh, of resources.
8: Part of that definition would include status quo, public policy, like Medicare. What parts of the status quo do reflect that kind of socialist worldview? Well, the parts
10: that... Guarantee people a basic standard of living and are accessible to all. I just read an article about public libraries and why socialists love public libraries. They are places that are free for everybody. They're controlled by the local people who have authority over them. They're not controlled by a company. And there's that sense of everyone is equal in a public library.
8: Although it does, to some, seem fearsome. It's the kind of socialism that is usually prefixed with the word creeping.
10: Well, public libraries embody an egalitarian spirit and they do sort of challenge the perspective that almost everything other than basic services like police and the military should be left to the market. And public libraries show an example of a well-run state institution. They kind of prove something which is a little dangerous to a certain kind of of free market orthodoxy, which is that they suggest that state-run institutions aren't necessarily a nightmare. So the public library kind of provides a vision of a way that common ownership and common control could work. So I I don't think they're necessarily wrong to view it as creeping. I think it does creep.
8: (laughs) That's actually not the answer I was expecting. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Um, What I thought you were going to say was, look, yes, but no, because libraries are not collectivism. (laughs) But this gets to the very point. I guess the fact that there is a relationship is precisely the thing that scares so many people, such as during the Red Scare. Although Soviet communism really isn't the thing that is the big talking point nowadays on the right. It seems to be Venezuela. You know, as we look at other
9: countries like Venezuela, etc., where socialism is imploding their country, do we really want that here? What happened in Venezuela? They call that democratic socialism, but they don't have toilet paper. Note to socialism fans, go visit Venezuela. <laughs>
10: The fact that a country calls itself socialist doesn't really tell you anything. North Korea calls itself a democracy. You have to look at how the country actually operates. For those of us who are democratic socialists, who are very strongly anti-authoritarian, who are skeptical of the concentration of unaccountable power... Venezuela doesn't tell you much at all because we oppose every measure that would increase uh, centralized and, and dictatorial power. This isn't a verdict on whether people should have democratic control over their workplaces. They don't have that in Venezuela, just like they didn't have it in the USSR. And that's why there were a lot of libertarian socialists. People like Bertrand Russell and Emma Goldman and Alexander Berkman were all horrified by the Soviet Union. Emma Goldman wrote an essay, There Is No Communism in Russia. Her whole idea was, well, it it only exists if people are actually equal, and equality was a lie in the Soviet Union. So it doesn't invalidate the idea of equality. What it invalidates is using authoritarian methods to sort of impose the illusion of equality on people by force.
8: A moment ago, we played a clip from Fox and Friends to show their horror at the word socialism, but... You don't have to go to the propaganda mouthpiece of the Trump White House to get that reaction. Here's a clip from CBS in which Nancy Pelosi was asked to respond to Republicans who say that Democratic socialists are ascendant in
6: her party. No, they're not. It's ascendant in that district, perhaps. uh, But I don't accept any characterization of our party presented by the Republicans.
8: The Democrats are terrified of the word, too. Why? Well, I think some
10: of them sincerely believe that from a pragmatic perspective, they have to distance themselves from that word because, you know, especially for older Democrats, they remember the Cold War. They, they think that America has been trained for a century to be horrified by this concept. But I think they don't understand. People in my generation have had to witness an economy that has crushed so many of our peers in debt and in hopelessness. We want a different word and we want something that can help to distinguish the value Values that we're putting forward from the values that have built the economy that we see treating people so badly.
9: In February of last year, during a CNN town hall house uh, town hall that was happening that was hosted by Jake Tapper, House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, she kind of chastised an NYU sophomore, Trevor Hill, who pointed out that maybe what the Democrats needed was a more stark contrast to right wing economics to attract younger voters, as the Tea Party had. And then just a couple of weeks ago, again on CNN, 33-year-old former South Carolina state lawmaker Bakari Sellers, a CNN commentator, said, "I don't care if I get." In trouble for saying this. I've been saying it since I'm blue in the face. Our Democratic leadership is old and stale. How much do you think there is a generational divide within the Democratic Party when it comes to considering what might be described as a more socialist prescription for the economy?
6: I think it's a really vast generational divide. Um, I think that polling bears it out. Um, But you can see it really well in how the kids lined up in the 2016 primaries, um, with Sanders being uh, pretty openly about. Uh, sort of social democratic uh, programs and a social democratic approach to governance, and then you know you had the sort of remainder, the older segments of the party lining up behind more traditional democratic candidate uh, in Clinton, and uh, and I think that you know more and more you see that you know even kids younger than millennials um, tend to be leaning a little bit more radical, uh, probably as a result of having grown up in the aftermath of the of the Great Recession.
9: You're right that my answer is admittedly more ambitious. It's time to give socialism a try. In your opinion, to what extent is being more socialist still electoral political suicide?
6: <laughs> well, I mean, it, it didn't, it, you know, Sanders did remarkably well being uh, not really contesting the label of socialism. I mean, wh- one of the things about being called a socialist at this point for the last eight years Um, You know, Republicans called Obama a socialist over nothing, over pretty ordinary, traditional, democratic policies that were maybe a a nudge less ambitious than most New Deal programs. So um, the the label has really lost a lot of its spite, I think, at this point. And also we have, you know, countries uh, in the Nordic countries that are doing, you know, pretty well um, with policies that are rightfully described as socialist. Um, so, I mean, I think it's probably still pretty suicidal, but maybe not as suicidal as it once was. More self harm.
9: So, to what degree then do you think that the right unintentionally watered down the meaning of socialism?
6: Yeah, I mean, I think they they certainly had a hand in it. Um, you know, the whole generation of kids has grown up, uh, you know, over essentially a decade watching the right say, uh, "Well, you know," kind of lightly modifying insurance markets uh, to to get people on health care. Uh, that's socialism. And, and uh, you know, the right described all kinds of things Obama did as socialism. They accused Michelle Obama of being some kind of socialist for trying to make school lunches healthier. And so I think there is certainly an effect of as to where socialism for the Cold War generation is the worst possible, most totalitarian thing you can imagine. Um, for kids who are growing up now, socialism is, what, it's Obama, it's Bernie Sanders, it's Sweden? That doesn't sound so bad.
9: Right. And you quote uh, the late, great scholar Mark Mark Fisher, writing, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. What would you say to someone, uh, because you were touching on the Soviet Union, uh, what would you say to someone who argues that pursuing socialism is a dead end? And it's been it's proven to be a dead end because, look, the Soviets failed and capitalism won.
6: Yeah, well, there are a lot of ways to uh, create a failed state. (laughs) I mean, uh, yeah. Certainly it's the case that you can have a failed socialist state and you can have socialist policies that um, conclude in in travesty. Uh, The same is true of capitalism. Um, I'm not proposing totalitarianism. And and I also think that uh, if you look at uh, plenty of other countries, and the right is schizophrenic on this, about half the time the right says that Sweden, Denmark, Norway, Finland, etc., they're not socialist. Uh, they're just capitalists with redistribution policies. And then about the other half of the time, they do say they're socialist. And that's usually when people are proposing, we do what they're doing. Um, so they're not really decided on whether or not they're socialist. I think they're pretty socialist. I think you have to look at policies on a spectrum. Uh, but they're also doing pretty well. And they, they have all kinds of good indicators. They rank well in terms of happiness. Internationally, they're happier than Americans. And they all have good health indicators, education indicators. So, I mean, I think there are ways to do socialism that appear to be working.
9: To what degree do you think American capitalism is failing because Soviet communism failed? That is, capitalism is failing because it's now seen as supreme and anything even remotely socialist within the U.S. social safety net and reining in big business with regulations is undone.
6: Yeah, I mean, the, the, certainly the, the politics of the Cold War has had lasting consequences in how America handles uh, its own economic system, its own political economy. I think that capitalism has its own problems. Uh, that are just inherent to it and that have been around for as long as capitalism has been around and have been noted for just as long. Um, I think that the American unwillingness to even try to kind of temper some of the effects of capitalism for its own good, to stabilize it and secure it, um, maybe have made American capitalism more volatile um, than than capitalism in countries where they're more willing to go in with uh, stronger regulation to kind of stabilize it. Um, so, you know, in that sense, I can... See how the uh, the impact of the Cold War has made American capitalism uh, even more difficult to sustain
0: Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed. In 2013, Amy Errett founded the company and named it after her daughter on a mission to revolutionize the way women color their hair. Traditionally, there have been two options, outdated at-home hair color, or the time and expense of a salon. Dissatisfied with the status quo, Madison Reed is reinventing the way women color their hair by offering the quality of salon color, the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color, and an ammonia-free formula with ingredients you can feel good about. Experience beautiful multidimensional hair color made in Italy, delivered to your door on your schedule for under $25. bucks. 100s of thousands of women have already tried and loved Madison Reed, so go ahead and give it a try for yourself. You can start by finding your perfect shade at madison-reed.com, and they have a special offer for you as a best of love listener. Right now, you can get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit when you use the promo code LEFT. That's madison-reed.com and use the promo code LEFT.
11: People don't agree on this subject. They don't agree on how to define capitalism. They don't agree on how to define socialism. And of course, then they cannot agree on what the difference is between the two of them since they don't agree on what it is. So maybe the best way to handle this is to tell you briefly what has been in the past The dominant understanding, because that will then allow me to tell you how and why it's changing now, and that's simply the reality people have to get used to if they're going to enter into this debate. Okay, so traditionally, emerging out of the 19th century and dominant for the 20th century, here was the basic idea. Capitalism, it was said, is a system in which the means of production Factories, buildings, money, cash, all of that was privately owned by individuals, either as individual persons or in groups, whereas socialism was publicly owned. That is, the society as a whole would collectively own the means of production, and they would be managed by the representative of the whole people, namely the government or the state. So capitalism is private ownership of means of production. Socialism is collective or state ownership. And the second basic difference was that in a capitalist system, goods and services go from the producer, those who make them, to the consumer, those who use them by means of a market exchange. That is the producer sells what has been produced To the consumer who buys it. To be very literal, it means that the produced object, whether it's a good or a service, has to go through an exchange process before it reaches the consumer. By contrast, socialism was defined as an arrangement in which the passage from production to consumption was done by a collectively organized plan. Planning was socialism market exchange was capitalism. So to make it very simple, capitalism is private ownership and markets, and socialism is collective or state ownership and government planning that could be organized in a variety of ways. That's why, for example, in the Soviet Revolution or in the Chinese Revolution, when the change was organized, private property was... Withdrawn from private owners and given over to the state in the name of the whole people, and markets were either suppressed or made secondary to a general plan which it was the government's responsibility to organize. Capitalism was overcome by socialism, the argument went, when the state took over private ownership and the state planning took dominance over markets if they were left at all to play a role. The problem with this definition was always the same. Namely, nothing was changed in the immediate production relationship. In other words, the relationship between who gives you the order of what to do in the workplace, where to sit, what machine to use, in what way, for what period of time, in what relationship to others working, all of the questions of the organization of the workplace were not touched in this discussion. It was as if it didn't matter. It was as if you had made the revolution simply by changing the ownership and the distribution system, not by the relationships. What has happened now is, for a number of reasons, that old definition of the difference has been rejected. Not by everybody. This is an ongoing process. But the new direction, which I am part of and which I believe is becoming dominant, is critical of the old definition, basically around the idea that to change the ownership and to change the system of distribution Simply is not enough that when you do that, but you leave in place the organization of the actual work process and the work relationships and the work structure, you are leaving in place a crucial part of capitalism. So now let me explain this argument. In this view, what distinguishes capitalism from other systems isn't private ownership and isn't market distributions this perspective reminds us that in the old feudal system and in the prior slavery systems you also had markets you also had uh, private ownership of slaves private ownership at various times of land in feudalism and so on so that the proper way the new way the more emerging way is to say that the distinction between capitalism and other systems should be focused on the relationships in work, in the process of producing the goods and services without which we cannot live. So that, for example, slavery, the relationship is one group of people owns another group of people. In feudalism, one group of people, the lords, have complete dominion, domination, over another group of people called serfs. In capitalism, you don't have the slavery relationship and you don't have the feudal relationship. You have the relationship of employer to employee. One group of people gives the opportunity to work and the other group of people depends on having the opportunity of work given to them in an exchange of wages for labor. Okay with this framework, what is then the distinction between capitalism and socialism? And then the answer becomes very clear and precise. Socialism is when you overcome, you end the relationship of employer to employee. No longer do you divide some people In the production process, who are the board of directors, the corporate leaders, the ones who decide what to produce, how to produce, where to produce, and what to do with the profits, and other people whose job it is to come five or six days a week, do what they are told, and then go home. That's over. Socialism, in this perspective, is when the workers together, as a society or a community, socialism, communism, that's when workers democratically together, one worker, one vote, decide all the basic decisions of the production world. Then you have socialism and until then you don't have socialism, which means you have to come up with another phrase to capture the Soviet Union or the People's Republic of China. And for lack of time, The answer is, these are state forms of capitalism. Why? Because the state owns and the state plans. But we call it capitalism because the state has not, or at least not yet, removed the employer-employee relationship.
7: Socialism is not just somebody has a good idea. Oh, let's have have a socialist system. Any more than capitalism was just a good idea. Oh, feudalism. Yeah, kings and aristocracy and lords. You know what? I got an idea for a whole new system. Let's have capitalism. It doesn't begin as an idea. It begins as an objective process of how human society develops. And how human econ- uh, the, the economies of human society develop. And, you know, we learn how to make tools. And now we don't want to have, you know, our tribal society that was built on just gathering berries and, you know, running around chasing animals. All of a sudden, we had agriculture and, yeah, and animal husbandry.
4: Yeah.
7: And uh, our society changes. And with that, the ideas change. So we start to become conscious of what's possible. Because of objective developments, it's not all just springing from people's heads. So to apply that idea to Venezuela, I mean, Hugo Chavez comes to power because neoliberalism and one of the first big mass protests against this hyper capitalist policies was in Venezuela uh, prior to uh, Chavez uh, getting elected and prior to his involvement in an attempted coup. But these policies were, were destroying Venezuela. And people, you know, they rose up against these policies. hyper hypercapitalism wasn't working. And the, the uh, uh, exploitation of the oil resources was, you know, tiny elite was benefiting from it. And people were conscious of this. So, sure, socializing the benefits of, of that oil, it was obvious as a way out of the situation. Uh, you have a movement and you have leaders that emerge from the movement and it is what it is, meaning, you know, it, it wasn't, they didn't have some great worked out plan. It wasn't, you know, a party with a head, you know, economists and all kinds of people to figure out what to do once you get elected. You know, stuff happens. They, and they, they may, may have been as surprised as anyone that they actually wound up running the country. Sure. And with all its defects and all its weaknesses and all its warts, uh the venezuelan or bolivarian revolution it accomplished a lot and it wasn't just about uh spreading more of the oil money around uh there was and i i guess still is i, I don't have i haven't been for a while and i don't have the same kind of handle on it but the kind of community uh decision making uh, community uh, governance at the local levels um, there was a, there were real experiments and and development developing different forms of democracy which has to be part of Uh, This socialistic conversation because like you have a big state owned sector in China, but you don't have any democracy to speak of. And you have a class of billionaires that have emerged that run the communist party. Um, So I don't know what kind of socialism it is. It's not socialism just because you have state ownership. And, and on the other hand, there's a certain amount of planning going on in China. People's standard of living is going up. Uh, These are They're complicated processes and we need to analyze them as such. But I'll go back to where I was in the beginning. The reason we need to have this conversation of what does a modern socialist system look like and how will it operate and what are the features of it? You know, we talk about, you know, even the United States is a mixed economy. There's socialistic features. We got to Publicly owned post office. Sure. We got publicly Public libraries. owned libraries and schools and such. Why? Because it made so much sense. Mm-hmm. But the same sense that it made to do that has made sense to have socialized healthcare in virtually every advanced capitalist country. It makes sense here. Mm-hmm. But once that makes sense, so does banking. Like, why would you have let big banks blackmail a whole society and a whole economy? So that they can go speculate. Sure. I guess I just want to end on uh, where I started. It's not just some intellectual conversation: is socialism good or bad? Yeah. There's been, as, as frankly, any major transformation of human society, uh, there's going to be tremendous uh, fault and weaknesses and, and you know stupidities. Especially, you know, if you talk about the Soviet Union building, trying to build socialism in what was a very backward country. And that was a matter of great debate at the time. But we need to look at this. We need to talk about it because capitalism has, is failed. It's failed most of the population of this world for the, you know, at least the last hundred years. But most importantly, it has no solutions to the Actual threat to us as human society, like capitalism's completely uh, out of steam, with the most urgent threats facing us. So this—it's not just some idea to uh, let—I mean, cafe conversation. This is about our our existence or not. And and unless somebody has some other idea, uh, and I don't think there is. When you look at what there is, you need to take—you've got to break up the concentration of ownership. Because with concentration of ownership goes concentrated political power. Everybody understands that. But there's no way to weight against that without public ownership. Like, how else do you break up concentrated ownership? It's not because you're going to give everybody a share of a company. That's not going to happen. The only counterbalance, counterweight to concentrated private ownership is public ownership. On the other hand, public ownership In a small number of hands, like a single party state or some of the models of the 20th century, that's as dangerous because concentrated power, even if it's in the name of socialism, will also be a disaster, will be a, you know, become a dictatorship because concentrated ownership equals concentrated political power. So we got to look at how does this public ownership look, ownership look in a way that's very diversified. You know, whether it's ownership at a city level, at a state levels, at the federal level when necessary, whether it's workers' co-ops, whether it's regional uh, conglomerations. But, you know, but I've said this before, we're in an era now because of artificial intelligence where you could coordinate an economy like that. You could have a Green New Deal, which is mostly built out of public ownership in many ways so that it doesn't get too concentrated. And still coordinate that. Um, I don't think it was ever possible in human history to have the kind of socialism that could also be democratic. Um, And as I said before, I don't think there's any choice to this because the alternative is we're not going to have civilization at all.
4: So I think a lot of people are aware of socialism now, especially since we have a self-proclaimed democratic socialist running for president, but they don't actually understand what it means. I think they're taking little bits and pieces, free health care, free education. Talk about the means of production and how a socialist economy would actually be structured.
11: They came up with the following idea, that the problem of capitalism is two fundamental things. One, that private individuals own the means of production. They own the land, they own the factories, they own the stores, the machinery and that the people, the owners, are really a very small part of the population, 1%, 2%, 5%, maybe even 10%, although rarely did it get that high. But that means the vast majority of people are never part of the owners. And the basic socialist idea was, if you allow a small number of people to control the means of producing all the goods and services we all need to survive, they're going to use that control to make the system work for them. And they're not going to worry about the rest of us. In other words, it's a recipe for a society that produces wealth for the top 5 to 10 percent, but not for everybody else. That gives power, political and other power, to those at the top and not to everybody else. So the socialist idea was this is fundamentally unjust, fundamentally undemocratic, this is what's wrong with capitalism, and how do you solve it? You make collective ownership, not private. The society as a whole should own the means of production the factories, the offices, the stores, so that they are good for everybody, so that what they produce is distributed roughly equally, so that the influence and the decisions are made. So social, that's why it's called socialism, it's the society that should own. It focuses on the workplace. Its idea is the way you make sure that the government never again becomes an institution over the people, but rather simply an instrument Of the people is by making sure that at the base of society, where people live and work, the wealth, the productive capability is in their hands. If you want the slogan of 21st century socialism, it's this, democratize the enterprise. End this process where there's a handful of people who make the decision. In most American corporations, and corporations do the bulk of the business in modern capitalism, a tiny group of what are called major shareholders, the people who have big blocks of shares, they select who the board of directors One percent of Americans own three quarters of the shares. It's highly concentrated. A tiny number of people, the one percent, own the bulk of the shares. How do you run a corporation? At the top is something called a board of directors, usually 15 to 20 people. How do you get on the board of directors? There's an election every year to get on that board. And the way the election works is, if you own a share of stock in the company, you get one vote. If you have 10 shares, you get 10 votes. If you own a million shares, you get a million votes. If you have no shares, that's how many votes you get. So there's no pretense of democracy. So if a handful of people own the bulk of the shares, They control everything. They select the 15 or 20 people on the board of directors. The board of directors decides what the company produces, how the company does it, where the company is located, and what's done with the profits. Everybody helps produce the profits. The employees have to live with the decision, but have no influence on it. It is the opposite of democracy. And if you don't have democracy at the workplace, You can't ever have it real in politics either because those at the top will buy the political system, something which we see in the United States so starkly every day that everyone knows. If workers took over a factory, had a worker co-op instead of a top-down, and the workers together decided what to do with the profits, you think they'd give a few executives $25 million so they have more money than they know what to do with while everybody else has to borrow money to send their kids to college.
1: It'll never happen.
11: You think a collection of workers, say 400 in a factory, considering that you could make more money if you moved the production to China, are they going to de- vote to get rid of their own jobs? It's not going to happen. They're not going to destroy their community by having an empty factory. They're not going to deprive their local government of the tax revenues to run the schools and the hospitals. And they're not going to deprive themselves of jobs. So. What we've had in the last 40 years, all those jobs leaving, would never have left if it was the collective decision of the workers where this production is going to take place.
3: Soviet Union collapsed 23 years ago. The pretext for fighting communism as part of an international fight against an enemy state. That's gone. That's vanished. Capitalism can no longer compare itself to the Soviet Union. It can only compare itself to itself. And we see within the capitalist society a growing hardship, growing income inequality, growing poverty, one out of every two Americans lives in or near poverty. And so as a consequence of this economic division and the inability to justify the old anti-communism, there's new space opening up for socialism. And you see the Occupy movement, people said, we are the 99%. That was kind of the harbinger of the beginning of a new socialist uh, context. The Sanders campaign, even though I don't agree with Bernie Sanders on many issues, The fact that tens of thousands of people come to someone who says he's a self-proclaimed socialist and says there should be an end to income inequality, that there should be greater equality. The fact that he's on the front cover of Time magazine and it says socialize this, comma, America, and that's not a bad thing, that means we're seeing a new day. The fog of anti-communism, the bigotry, the prejudice, that's starting to lift. And the Sanders campaign's success, surprising success, or the Occupy movement's sudden, spontaneous growth nationwide, These are harbingers of what's coming.
4: This war on ideas and alternatives is still being relentlessly pursued every day. Even 50 years after the Cold War, the empire continues to wage war on every remaining country trying to build up socialism, refusing to let even one nation develop alternatives without the constant threat of subversion and overthrow. Because the last thing the system wants is an example that undermines its supreme truth. The inability to question this dogma is deeply ingrained. After all, capitalism is the bedrock of America. But like every other myth that acts as the glue to our society, this too needs to be challenged. The planet is in deep crisis, where war and inequality define our world. Unfettered capitalism and endless consumption cannot and will not last. The elite at the helm won't ever give up their security for the good of humanity. And the old guard will use every weapon in its arsenal to maintain domination. The Empire's long war against any alternative that challenges this crushing reality is unconscionable. We have the right to criticize the system itself without being labeled shut down or worse. We can't let the rulers of this system dictate the boundaries of our discussion. Because in this era, where alternatives are desperately needed, we have to unite to marginalize their ideas not let them marginalize ours.
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with Backstory, discussing the U.S. response to the Bolshevik Revolution. The Empire Files highlighted many of the reasons why Russia's implementation of socialism failed. Separately, the Empire Files next described America's war on the idea of socialism— On the Media discussed the modern mainstream debate over the resurgence of socialism. This is Hell spoke with Elizabeth Brunig, author of the recent article Ready for Socialism, about the generational divide on socialism and how the right, by calling everything socialism, has basically defanged the threat. Activism Munich spoke with Professor Richard Wolff about the definition of capitalism and the debate over what should be the definition of socialism. Paul Jay on the Real News Network described the failures of capitalism as the main driving factor for the current interest in socialism. The Empire Files also spoke with Professor Richard Wolff, who, in this clip, described a modern concept of how a socialist system could work. And finally, we just heard in another clip from The Empire Files a description of how and why the times are right for people to be waking up to socialism as a viable solution to many of the problems with capitalism. Members will be getting a bonus episode with additional clips with some further discussion on the rise of democratic socialists in America and a detailed description of how capitalism through globalization has finally hit its natural breaking point. To hear all of that, to cast a weekly vote on what upcoming topics you want to hear on the show, and for other details about supporting the show by being a patron, visit patreon.com bestofleft. You can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen, which is also where you can find links to each. Of today's segments for easy reference and sharing. And now since we don't have any voicemails today, I'm going to take the opportunity to play a couple additional clips, these uh, not explaining the interest in the rise of socialism, but a, a couple of the sillier responses to it, one from Fox News and one from a conservative publication, and we'll discuss the uh the stark um similarities between the two.
12: What the the right has real trouble with is dealing when with um, anyone on the left who simply states unequivocally they want the government to provide for people some basic requirements for living a fulfilling life they don't know how to deal with it and it's really fun to watch here is uh... Fox and Friends trying to deal with this surge of socialism in the Democratic Party.
10: Any new deal for our future.
5: Right, thirty-one billion dollars is Medicare for all, and not many people high-five when they have med. Yeah, not many p-trillion. Excuse me, I keep forgetting. Um, but not many people high-five when you First get. First
12: me- of all, there's a huge difference between a thirty-one billion and thirty-one trillion dollars. But as you heard on this program last week. That cost reflects a projection by a libertarian think tank as to how much Medicare for All will cost if it's implemented between the years of 2022 and 2032. Left out of this segment, apparently, is that that represents a $2 trillion savings relative to what we as a nation expend on healthcare or would help uh, over those 10 years by that own serve report said that it just they buried it a little bit. So it would represent a $2 trillion savings uh, from the pockets of the American people to have Medicare for all, not to mention that you God knows how much sort of productivity, if that's what you're worried about, or just leisure time or just, Mental duress would be spared uh, by not having to go through the Byzantine process of dealing with private insurance. But let's continue.
5: Yeah, not many petrillion, excuse me, I keep forgetting. Um, but not many people high five when you get Medicare. I mean, it's not the best.
12: Well, one of the reasons. So- Actually, that's not true either. Now, it's maybe the case that people don't literally high five, although I would imagine. Some would. I feel like I would. You get a pretty exciting uh,
2: letter in the mail regarding that sort of thing.
12: People, the idea that there are people out there who just can't wait until they're on Medicare is absolutely the case. You do not have to search very far for that. Go Google Medicare approval rates right now. The only thing that might be higher than Medicare approval rates is Social Security approval rates. There is no other. Nothing is as a popular
5: five when you get Medicare.
12: I mean, it's not the best. Well, one of the reasons so many people on the Democratic Party are talking about socialism now is because uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez had that stunning win. And who did who had energized everybody in the last election? It was Bernie Sanders. Rick Harrison, who you've seen on this program, he's the star of Pawn Stars on cable. He says the fact that we're talking about socialism right now in America Is mind-boggling. Pause it for one second. What is genuinely mind-boggling is that they've set up this whole thing about socialism, and they're like, we should check in with the star of Pawn Stars. (laughs) Incidentally, pawn shops, if you're not aware of them, are places where broke people go to sell uh, important things in their lives as a way of getting short-term funding for things like paying for an operation. Or for dental work or, uh, because they, they want to, I don't know, they're somebody's, I mean, it's probably, I wonder like what percentage of stuff is sold at pawn shops to pay for medical bills or things we should just be providing. Exactly. <laughs> so, but wh- who better, who better to go to to talk about socialism than someone who is at the bottom feeding le- who, uh, who profits off of the victims of capitalism
4: totally unbiased commentator here
12: we go
0: look on some of these news channels these people supposedly have a college education and they're touting socialism which to me is just sort of mind-boggling i mean
2: obviously you didn't you cheated a lot (laughs) and it it, but socialism is it it sounds so great though that's why
0: people you know embrace it It, you know the government's going to pay for everything it sounds great but you know
5: economically it can't happen See the American dream, and he talked about watches. He says, you know, the whole world is watching. But-
12: I just want you to know that the critique of socialism is that it can't happen. It sounds, good it, sounds gr- it sounds great, but it can't happen because why? Well, let's go back to the Fox and Friends guys who are going to explicate the explication. <laughs>
5: American dream. And he talked about watches. He says, you know, the whole world invented watches, but it was America with, with this, with this business climate. that was able to take the watch mass produce it to the right. fact that we became the best watchmakers ever. That was in the 18, uh, 1850s. And then he says, <laughs> look at me, he didn't have a high school education. He didn't go to college. He applied for a business license right. in a week and he got it and he made it on his own. He goes, you're not going to have that if you have socialism, right? But
12: if you don't have anything and somebody's offering free, college free health care free everything that is a very tantalizing prospect mm. but if you didn't learn in school
5: <laughs> how when you don't have anything the way to require it is not to get it by being given by having it handed to you but by earning it <laughs> But there been, was, you know, it we, we gotta school?
12: stop this we gotta play this again we gotta, like what first off this is a conversation that if I heard if I came home and my uh near thirteen year old daughter was having this conversation with her friends, I'd be like, guys, seriously, you're better than this. Let's just like sound like come on. You guys going into eighth grade, you you can be a little bit more sophisticated in talking about this. But I love how Kill Mead comes in and like, no, Deucey's making it sound too good. No, you need to learn in school that if someone's giving you something, it's not good because you're getting it because of watches in the 1850s.
0: So this clip is good, I, th- I think, because they cover both major arguments that I'm hearing coming out of you know, conservative critics of socialism and, and just admitting that we're pretty much talking about vaguely socialistically styled programs like universal healthcare or education. You know, we're not talking about employee ownership of, of enterprise at the moment. So uh, just talking about these programs, admittedly, the, the first argument is usually about cost. They do bring up cost. They throw out big, and uh, you know, scary-sounding numbers, as we heard in this clip, and then obviously fail to mention that the cost of status quo programs as they currently run would be even bigger, even more scary numbers. So the the whole cost argument falls flat. And what I'm finding fascinating is that their fallback argument seems to be nothing more complicated than, yeah, you know, it sure sounds good, but we can't. End of argument. Like, that's all they've got. Yeah, but, you know, can't do that. And the second clip is, bizarrely similar uh w- with a you know a very similar conclusion
12: a woman who is not a reporter as far as I can tell just an average american and now i imagine it will come out that she's you know i don't know uh some paid operative for some right wing um outfit it really doesn't matter um what's oh she does is she really uh is she a she's writer a, she's associate editor oh Dana she is Co- yeah. Oh, okay i didn't know because it didn't sort of like Okay, yeah, our associate editor, because it was. Uh, I'm a conservative, and I went to an Alexandria Ocasio Cortez rally. Uh, I would assume if you're writing in the Daily Caller, you're a conservative, but I guess this was more of like a clickbait type of thing. Um, she writes that I went to a rally uh, against the seven term incumbent William Lacey Clay. Over the years, I have attended my share of political events, Tea Party protests. A Rick Perry speech on tax cuts.
1: (laughs) 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 Electrifying
10: content.
12: A Ted Cruz rally. And even a speech given by President Donald Trump earlier this year. But nothing prepared me for the stark difference in tone. Ocasio-Cortez spoke, followed by Bush. That's the candidate. And I saw something truly terrifying. I saw just how easy it would be. Were I less involved and less certain of our nation's founding and its history to fall for the populist lines they were shouting from that stage. I saw how easy it would be as a parent to accept the idea that my children deserve health care and education.
8: <laughs> yeah it's not, very very easy to manipulate people with stuff like well, that.
12: well i just I, I i want this to just i want people to i want this to marinate in your brain that a parent just said i saw how easy it would be as a parent to accept the idea that my children deserve health care and education jesus i saw how easy it would be as someone who struggled to make men ends meet to accept the idea that a quote Living wage was a human right. Sounds persuasive, doesn't it? Above all, I saw how easy it would be to accept the notion that it was the government's job to make sure that those things were provided. I watched as both Ocasio Cortez and Bush deftly chopped America up into demographics, pointed out how those demographics had been victimized under the current system, and then promised to be the voice for those demographics the movement ocasio-cortez shouted knows no zip code it knows no state it knows no race it knows no gender it knows no documented status in other words they cut it up into demographics but then said the movements not about demographics Bush, after saying your piece noted, she was careful to allow speakers from all across, all demographics. Why demographics? What are the... F- to make it clear, she was not running mean. to represent just one particular group, but all. My demographics get it. A lot of
11: demographics.
12: I can't quite get my, my arms around whether she's saying that they contradicted themselves or that... Because that last sentence says, even though we've allowed speakers... To talk about things from different demographics here. We represent everyone. How horrific. Now, as opposed to, let's say, that Ted Cruz rally, where like, we only have one broad demographic, normal white people. And that's it.
11: We have one demographic and other demographics are going to need to quiet. I
12: left the rally with a photo in part to remind myself of that time I crashed a rally headlined by a socialist. But also, in part, to remind myself that there, but for the grace of God, go I. And
0: that's where that article writer decided to end the story. And so, to be clear, Sam did not read the entire article in that clip I just played. But I went and read the entire article, and there are no additional details backing up her argument or her claim or anything. So, her whole point was, that sounds really good, but again well, you know, we just can't. I, you know, if I didn't know better, I would say that sounded like a really good set of policies, but I do know better the end. It's such a strange position to take and and to have, I mean, maybe they think they have something to back it up, but but really um, all I can think is, like, how badly would these people fail that, that uh, test, the, um, uh, describe your opponent's, position test that we've been talking about recently uh, you know in addition to these kinds of well sounds good but we can't the only other thing you hear is Venezuela so like their argument would be, hey um, conservative describe what socialist policies people like Alexandro Casio cortez or Bernie Sanders or Professor Richard Wolf like what policies would they like um, I don't know but whatever Venezuela did, that is exactly what they're proposing, and we'd had the, the same outcomes, I presume. Like, that's how they would describe their opponent's position. It's absolutely comically sad and pathetic, is my only conclusion. So I just want to play those for you and, and, and demonstrate that there is a, a fierce and rigorous debate going on. I, I didn't just want to play the pro-socialism side, but uh, get the anti as well. So that is gonna be it for today. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-99-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com/slash best of left. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show. From Best of left.com.